Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, January 14th, 2016. I think I got that right. I'm projecting into the future. I'm vision casting about what the program will be like in the future. <laughs> no, I'm joking about that. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, slow, slow, slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-proclaimed apostles and apostolettes, and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those who we need to be listening to, to see if what they're saying, saying about God, what God wants you to do, what we're supposed to believe, if, well, that really squares with what God's Word truly says. And over again, we find here at Fighting for the Faith there is, well, um, a gap, if you would. Um, things aren't squaring. There's Things aren't matching up with God's Word when we look at it in context, using sound biblical hermeneutics, proper exegesis, a Christ-centered approach to Scripture. Yeah, it's about Jesus, not you. And we properly distinguish between the law and the gospel as God's Word tells us and teaches us to do. And, uh, and and as a result of it, we discover that so much of what people are saying is is just a twisting and a mangling of God's word, and and um it, you know it's you know it's just there's all these ands on top of it. it. It not only is it a twisting of God's word, it well it takes people's eyes off of Christ and undermines their faith. And doesn't, well, these guys are actually teaching things that they ought not to teach. And they're doing so oftentimes for money reasons, you know, greed, power. You know, there's lots of stuff that, uh, you know, motivates them. But, you know, what's not motivating them is a love for Christ and his word. Now, what we've been doing this week while I'm in Norway lecturing in, uh, you know, about an hour or so outside of Stavanger um, is uh, we have been uh, listening to all of the sermons that I preached in the month of December, I preached 10, 10 of them. We cheated and put one of them in from the very end of November. So all of our my Advent sermons, Christmas sermons, and midweek Advent sermons, we've uh, put them all together uh, you know, with the idea, I'm, I'm laying my cards out, and, I, and you get to see and hear what it is that I preach, you know, how I handle a biblical text, and uh, and it gives you a comparison point, and... Not only that, it gives you the opportunity to 
well, check to see if I'm rightly handling God's word. That's the idea. I'm not a, I'm not above, you know, you opening up the scriptures and saying, well, let's see if Pastor Roseboro's really rightly handling God's word. So I'm putting all my cards out on the table, and you get to do some fact checking, and hopefully you're finding this helpful and beneficial and edifying and uplifting and a whole lot of other things. But uh, today we're going to listen to two more sermons. We're going to listen to my Advent three. Uh, and Advent 4 sermons. The Advent 3 sermon is entitled, The King of Israel is in Your Midst, and it's based on Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. And then the Advent 4 sermon is entitled, Blessed is the One Who Believes, and it's based on Luke chapter 1, 39 through 56. So let's get to it with uh, sermon number 1, The King of Israel is in Your Midst. Here we go. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 7, verses 18 through 35. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they asked, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? No, if not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people... Even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts of the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? Well, they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. Well, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say here's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all of her children. In the name of Jesus. All right, here again our epistle text that kind of lead things off. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul wrote these words from prison. Rejoice in the Lord always. I don't know how many of you could write such a sentence if you found yourself incarcerated preaching the gospel, and yet Paul writes these things. And you can kind of think of today, you know, this third Sunday of Advent as Rejoice Sunday. It's Rejoice Sunday. There's a lot of interplay on rejoicing here and also kind of interplay on light and darkness. We'll talk about that. So let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
Well, there goes that whole theology. You don't need to pray. You just need to decree and declare things. Here Paul says very clearly, let your requests, your petitions be made known to God. In other words, when we pray, we don't demand things from God and say, I have faith and I decree and declare. No, we humbly on our knees say, Lord, we need these things in your mercy. Please grant them. And he being God may answer our prayers with a yes. He may answer them with a no. Or he might say something to the effect of, you know, I understand you need that but I'm going to tweak your request a little bit so that what you have asked for doesn't harm you, right? This is how God is. So the peace of the Lord, which surpasses all understanding, this will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This frames our thoughts then as we return to our gospel text, and I'll be reading from my translation. Here's what it says. His disciples reported to John about all these things, and having summoned a certain two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one coming, or should we, should we be looking for another one, someone else? It's an interesting question. Keep in mind that the Gospel of John writes of John the Baptist in chapter 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, was not the light, but he was to bear witness to the light, and so he did. But now he finds himself in a dark dungeon, in prison, in Herod's prison. For doing what? Preaching repentance. Preaching repentance is a dicey business. It could get you in a lot of trouble. John should let you know that, but that's okay. But so says this, so John has heard the reports of Jesus. He's in prison. Okay? He wanted, wants to make sure he hasn't run his course in vain. But what's getting to John is kind of mixed reports. Remember when John preached about Jesus? Repent, repent. He's sp- spitting grasshopper legs at people. You know, He's smelly. He looks awful. He's dressed terribly. He's got this kind of wild wilderness man thing going on, right? And he's telling people, When he comes, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to take the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he's going to burn up. This is John's message. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And you know what Jesus is doing? He's forgiving prostitutes. He's absolving tax collectors. All the sinners are coming around. The lepers, you know, the untouchables, the one that God's law demands that they stay outside of the city and say, unclean, unclean. Jesus is touching them and healing them. All of the outcasts, all of those kicked to the curb by God's law, all of the rabble, all of those sinners, all of those sick people, they're being healed, forgiven. And of course, the Pharisees, they're not very impressed with this. And so John, in that dark prison, He's hearing reports. Yeah, Jesus is going around. He's doing all these things, but he's like hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. So John has one of those moments where he's, is cousin Jesus really the dude or not? He didn't say dude, but you kind of get the point. So, so having come to Jesus, the men said, John the Baptist sent us forth to you saying, are you the one coming Or should we be looking for another? Now, Jesus could have just simply said, yeah, I'm the Messiah. Go tell that to John. But here's how he answers it. 
It says, at that hour, he cured many from diseases and scourges and evil spirits. He granted seeing to many blind ones. And having responded, he said to them, go and report to John the things which you saw and you heard. Blind ones are seeing again. Lame ones are walking. Lepers are being cleansed. Deaf ones are hearing. Dead ones are being raised. Poor ones are having good news announced to them. All of these are fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament regarding the Messiah, which would unequivocally communicate to John the Baptist, yeah, I'm the one. Don't expect anybody else. But it's fascinating. In that list of fulfilled prophecies, there's one particular fulfilled prophecy or prophecy regarding the Messiah that Jesus doesn't have reported to John. And one of the prophecies of the Messiah is that he would set the prisoners free. But John was not going to be set free. He was going to die and be martyred for proclaiming and being a bearing witness to the light. So he didn't want to give him any false hopes. But let him know that the blind ones are seeing, lepers are being cleansed, deaf ones are hearing, dead ones are being raised, poor ones are having good news announced to them. And then Jesus says this, and blessed is whoever does not take offense in me. It really is offensive to the religious, to the self-righteous, that all this rabble, all of these sinners, these tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, blind ones, all of these people who were clearly born in sin, that they're being forgiven and restored. Free. They don't even have to pay for it. There's nothing they have to do. Just receive. Jesus is like Santa Claus on Christmas, handing out all these gifts to these people. But these aren't cute children. These are sinners he's handing these gifts out to. God doesn't, isn't supposed to operate that way. It's supposed to work off the quid pro quo. You do your part, and then God is supposed to do his part. You pay your tithe, God blesses you. You obey, God blesses you. Jesus has taken all of this and just turned it right upside down. You are a sinner, God forgives you. It's not supposed to work that way. And yet it was. There was Jesus handing out mercy, forgiveness, healing, and grace. And the Pharisees are offended. Self-righteous usually are. You, what, <laughs> forgiveness can't be that free. I understand that it's a gift. But come on, somebody's got, you got to pay a little bit for it. Right? This is how they operate. This is how they think. No, free means free, gift means gift. Get over it. You don't like the fact that that sinner's being forgiven? Well, just imagine how offended somebody is that God can forgive you. That'll quiet the conversation down a little bit, by the way. Right? So Jesus says, Blessed is whoever does not take offense in me. Intermission. Here again the words of our Old Testament text. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He's cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. You see, all of these things were happening because the King of Israel, Yahweh Himself, was in their very midst. And yet, keep this in mind. Jesus says, where two or more are gathered in my name, he is there in their midst. 
the King of Israel, the Lord Himself, He's even in our midst today, forgiving and handing out His great mercy and gifts. Verse 24 from the Gospel text. So the messengers of John having departed, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. I love Jesus' kind of tongue-in-cheek here. So what did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed blowing and shaken by the wind? Little joke, right? No. What'd you go out to see? A man having dressed in soft garments? No. Behold, the ones being in glorious clothing and luxury, they're in royal places. So what did you go out to see? A prophet. And there it is. Jesus makes it very clear that John the Baptist is a prophet. But he's more than that, Jesus says. Yes, a prophet, and I say to you more than a prophet. The reason why is because he's kind of like part prophet, part gospel preacher. Truly, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets and the first of the evangelists. So I say to you more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it has been written, and you can find this in Malachi chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Behold, I am sending forth my messenger ahead of your presence who will make your way ready in front of you. I say to you, no one is greater among ones born of women than John. Now real quick, let's understand what Jesus is saying here. That there is no one greater among those born of women. You can kind of think of it this way. At the end of the day, if you were wondering, okay, when it's all tallied on the day of judgment, who really was the one who was the holiest of the holy among the sinners of earth? You know, if you pull out God's law and that's your standard, right? How, you know, how do you measure up, right? Is it Mother Teresa? Is she coming in on top? Is it going to be Billy Graham? Who's it going to be? John the Baptist. According to the law, the one who lived the holiest life is not Mother Teresa. It's not John. It's not Billy Graham. It's not anybody today. Definitely not any of the televangelists. I want to make that clear. It's John the Baptist. But then Jesus says this, but the least one in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The least. That means the most forgiven sinner. I, that something like that. It has something to do with the gospel. I don't know how least and greatest are kind of worked out in the kingdom of heaven, but I do know this. Everybody who's truly a part of the kingdom of heaven They are forgiven sinners. And so however that is judged by God, greatest, least, apparently there's some kind of a way of working all of this out, you know? And you think there, just before you think, you know, that maybe that means that like the prostitute who is trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of her sins, maybe she's the least. But see, the thing is it takes a lot of faith to believe that those kinds of sins can be forgiven and that it's truly for you. That would probably, she would not be the one who's the least in the kingdom of heaven. She might be closer to the top, to the greatest. Maybe the least in the kingdom of heaven is the pastor who preached the gospel his entire life and barely believed it. Or didn't think that he really needed that much forgiveness. That guy could really be the least, right? And you think, what a scoundrel that guy is, right? What a scoundrel. So, According to Jesus, even that forgiven sinner is way greater than John the Baptist in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because what is it that makes us great in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus. 
His mercy, His forgiveness, His righteousness that covers our sin and shame. So notice the interplay here. John the Baptist, the greatest among all the people that will ever be born of a woman, according to the law, but even the most rotten of the rotten in the kingdom of heaven is way greater than he is. What? This is good news. These are comforting words. So, all the people having heard Jesus, even the tax collectors, and now here's the, this is going to be an interesting translation. The NIV gets at this a little bit better than the ESV, but here's how I translate it. All of these people having heard Jesus, even the tax collectors, and they vindicated God. They showed God to be true because they had been baptized with the baptism of John. God is vindicated by His children. God is vindicated and shown to be true by those whom He has had mercy on. Those who've been brought to penitent faith who trust in Him for the forgiveness of their sins. That's what Jesus is saying. But here's what it says then. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. This is utter foolishness. This is utter foolishness. Now notice here that God's purpose for the Pharisee and these experts in the law, His purpose for them was the exact same purpose even for the rabble that He had. They repent. That their sins are washed away. That they are forgiven. Why? Because God is rich in mercy. He can forgive even you. And so the Pharisees, they come to hear John and you know what? They say, that's okay, we'll pass. We don't need to be baptized. We're good people. We keep the law. We don't need to be forgiven and have our sins washed away. And to which, all the Norwegians said, ufta. Right? And rightly so. And rightly so. Because the one thing I know about Pharisees, and the one thing I know about the rabble, is that we're all on the same level. Sinner in need of Savior. And there's the Savior. And so John, he baptized them in preparation for the light to come into the world. And everybody was repenting, having their sins forgiven. But the Pharisees said, no thank you, we don't need that. And it says here, Jesus said, that they have rejected the purpose of God for themselves. And God's purpose was to forgive them. How sad. Absolutely sad. He would have them forgiven and restored and their sins washed away. And they said, no, we don't need that. And blindly went along with their false religion, which took them to hell. Very sad. Again, Zephaniah. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. What? The Lord who is mighty to save is going to rejoice over you and over me? Yes, God is vindicated by His holy ones, His forgiven ones. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. This is an amazing passage. God is in our midst, mighty to save. And He will exalt over us with gladness. 
That's how much his love is for us. It's like a father exulting over his son. That's the kind of love that's being described here. Back to our gospel. So then Jesus said, what then will I liken the people of this generation? Well, what are they like? Well, they're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another say, well, we played the flute and you didn't dance. Who doesn't dance when the flute's playing, right? I mean, every time I hear a flute, I start to do a little jig, right? <laughs> okay. So we played a dirge. <laughs> you didn't lament. <laughs> okay. We lamented and you didn't weep. All right, so... John the Baptist, he's come not eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. Son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, behold, this man's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Oh, yes, he is. Yes, he is. Jesus truly is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That means he's our friend. Because as I look across the congregation here, all I see are sinners. And the good news is that Christ truly is the friend of sinners. And you think, what's going on in this text? Well, Jesus is describing those Pharisees. And let me quote Cyril of Alexandria on this, just to throw something exotic as far as a quote is. Cyril of Alexandria commenting on this says, The prophet's words will apply to us. Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, who call bitter sweet and sweet bitter, who put light for darkness and darkness for light. This was the character of the Israelites, especially of those who were their chiefs, the scribes, namely, and the Pharisees. Christ said about them, to what shall I liken the men of this generation? Talk about blindness. This is what Jesus is describing. They see John the Baptist, and they don't repent. That's like somebody playing the flute and you don't dance, or somebody playing a dirge and you don't lament or weep. It doesn't make any sense. That's calling light darkness. It's worse than that. It's calling darkness light. And so that's how backwards, upside down, and inside out the Pharisees are. They're so backwards, inside out, they think that it's an awful thing that Jesus is a friend of sinners. But to those who have been forgiven... To know that Jesus is a friend of sinners is not a terrible thing. It's a wonderful thing. Because it gives us hope. Hope that we can stand on the day of judgment. Hope that we do not have to suffer shame and reproach. To suffer the shame and reproach that comes from God who says, depart from me, I never knew you. And rather than hearing those words, we hear, welcome into my kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. And you say, me? How can that possibly be? I washed you. I forgave you. I gave you faith. I fed you with the body and blood of my son. How can you not be pleasing to me? I have made you so. Right? And this is why, verse 35, Jesus reiterates, wisdom was vindicated by all of her children. God is truly vindicated by all who repent and believe and trust in him the forgiveness of your sins. So the Lord is in our midst, mighty to save, mighty to save even us. Zephaniah writes again, Behold, at that time I will deal with all of your oppressors. And who are our oppressors? Sin, death, the devil, the world, our own sinful flesh. God's going to deal with that. 
and I will save the lame, and I will gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. And the fortune he's talking about that's going to be restored is paradise. The earth that was lost when Adam and Eve sinned, that plunged us into the curse as it was in the beginning, it will be forever. He's going to change our fortunes. All of the curse goes away, and it's nothing but perfect paradise face to face with God forever. That's the ultimate fortune reversal. So rejoice. Let me end with these words from the hymn that we all know, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Two, two stanzas, and I've changed one word. One word. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. O come thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thy, dro- by thy advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel has come to thee, O Consvigil. In the name of Jesus, Amen. So what did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break when we come back. We'll be listening to sermon number two uh, entitled Blessed is the One Who Believes. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst! Holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm. You're gonna be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy! These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. 
Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no! And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power responding, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy they'll make you uh, holy. Uh. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Faith Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas is having a Biblical Worldview Conference February 5th and 6th, 2016 with the theme, Standing Firm in a Hostile World, to help Christians in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Biblical Christianity. Speakers will include Pastor David J. Weber, Attorney Mark Stern, Professor Alan Quist, Dr. Adam Francisco, and Pastor Joseph Abrahamson. Registration and details can be found at worldviewsa.org. Again, that's worldviewsa.org. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if they don't preach Christ and Him and what He's done for you. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend on you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. Visit us on our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute, well, the amount that you choose. That's the best way to put it. We have four different ranks uh, of our crew members, and the lowest rank is Powder Monkey at nine ninety five a month. Yeah, Powder Monkey, again, I, I know these are these are official historical piratey type <laughs> name and ranks. Uh, so pi- powder monkeys at nine ninety five a month. Uh, the gunners mate twenty four ninety five a month. Master gunner forty nine ninety five a month. Quartermaster ninety nine ninety five a month. And uh, like I've been saying, we're in the hunt for looking for 
the equivalent of 600 new powder monkeys to join our crew. So if you listen to Fighting for the Faith, have found it beneficial for helping you understand the scripture, understand how to rightly listen to a sermon with the sermon and have helped you understand the Bible better, well then uh, join our crew and, and help us to not only keep doing what we're doing, but also bring to fruition you know, phase two of what we'd like to do with the Pirate Christian dot uh, com website and uh, and so you know help support us to keep us going and to help us expand our reach now if you'd like to make a one-time contribution you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send it to post office box 13344 grand forks north dakota zip code 58208 and let me thank you for your support we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it All right, here is the next sermon uh, entitled, Blessed is the One Who Believes. It's based on Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. Here we go. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant, And from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant, Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he has said to our fathers. And then Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. In the name of Jesus. It's almost here. More than a baby bump, right? We've got full-blown Braxton Hicks contractions. The baggage, the luggage is packed. They're ready to roll. This is, we're getting close here. The baby's about to be here. Good stuff. So let's take a look at our gospel text and we'll work our way through it. I'll be preaching from my translation. Here's what it says. Having arisen during those days, Mary proceeded to the hill country with haste to a city of Judah. Now we don't know if the reason why she went off to go visit cousin Elizabeth is due to the fact that Elizabeth needed help. I mean, this is a woman who is old enough to be some of y'all's grandma, um, and she's pregnant. doesn't say why. Or it may be that the reason why she was uh, heading off to the hill country of Judea is, well, because if you remember back in the day when girls would get pregnant, they would go visit their cousins in Iowa, right? They'd be gone for a long, extended period, and then come back as, as if nothing had happened. We don't know what the reason is. It doesn't say. It just says that she headed out with haste. And this is after it's been announced to her that she is going to be the one who is going to carry the Messiah. So here's what it says. And so 
Mary entered the, into the house of Zechariah, greeted Elizabeth, and it came about that when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. This is not a normal thing for babies to do. Not a normal thing at all. Now, let me remind you of what the, uh, what the angel Gabriel said to Zechariah. Let's get a little bit of context. We're going to pick up two pieces of context in our sermon today from the earlier part of Luke chapter 1. This context begins at Luke chapter 1, verses, verse 8, and I'll go to verse 17, and listen to how it was announced that Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, was going to be giving birth. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. You, know, you think the Lot fell on him by accident? God messed with those dice that day, right? So, chosen by Lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came... All the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And we think of that passage in the psalm that says, Let your prayers rise before you as incense, the raising of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So this is what's happening. So then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. You can almost see him grabbing his heart going, Ah, my ticker, right? So the angel says to him, kind of standard greeting for angels, do not be afraid, which kind of begs the question, those people out there claiming to have had angelic encounters as if somehow it's like meeting a friend at Starbucks if they actually really truly had an angelic encounter. Do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to give him the name John, side note here, how many years do you think it's been, maybe decades, since Zechariah has prayed that his wife would have child. They're well advanced in years here. That's long ago, yet God hears prayers, even if that prayer was prayed 30, 40 years ago. So your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink. That means he's going to be a Nazarite from birth. And He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, one thing that many theologians all agree upon is this, is that, well, in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you must first be a believer. You must first be regenerate. What does this tell us about John? In his mother's womb, filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, the implications are pretty profound indeed. Let's kind of get the obvious one out on the table. Let's get away from this idea that you're not fully human until you're born. Absolutely not. Here we have John the Baptist already beginning his work of being the forerunner of Christ, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit in utero. You think God was basically saying, yeah, I know that you're already doing your prophetic duty. I know you're already regenerate and saved and I filled you with the Holy Spirit, but you're not quite human yet. No, that's not what's going on. John is leaping for joy at the sound of the voice of his Savior, the mother of his Lord. Don't be sucked into the rhetoric of today by those who would deny full humanity to the unborn. Not dealing with 
you know, a guy who's basically just a blob of cells. He is a human being. And also, next implication, let's be done finally with this false idea that small infants don't have a relationship with God. It's not true. This is absolutely false. In utero, John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins his prophetic work of being the forerunner of Christ. Another good passage on this is Psalm 22, verses 9-10, through which reads, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You, Lord, made me trust at my mother's breasts. And on you I was cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. It is an absolute travesty that there are so many Christians today who basically think that God doesn't have anything to do with infants. This is nonsense. God loves them. Christ has bled and died for them. And they are capable of being given the gift of faith because faith is something that is a gift that's given by God. It is not our own doing in the first place. It is God's doing. And so here we have a clear example of Scripture where, well, not only an infant, smaller than an infant, a preemie, in utero, a fetus, filled with the Holy Spirit, fully human, fully saved, already doing prophetic work, right? Augustine writes about this passage. He says, we see instances of leaping, not only in children, but even in animals, although certainly not for any faith or religion or rational recognition of someone coming. But this case stands out as utterly uncommon and totally new because it took place in a womb at the coming of her who was to bring forth the Savior of humankind. Therefore, this leaping, this greeting, so to speak, offered to the mother of the Lord is miraculous, and it should be reckoned among the great signs. It was not affected by human means, by the infant, by divine means, in the infant, as miracles are usually wrought. Church Father Maximus of Turin, preaching on this text, said this, Not yet born, already, John prophesies, and while still in the enclosure of his mother's womb, confessing the coming of Christ with movements of joy, since he could not do so with his voice. Fascinating, right? As Elizabeth says to the Holy Mary, as soon as you greeted me, the child in my womb exalted for joy. So John exalts then before he is born, and before his eyes can see what the world looks like, he can recognize the Lord of the world with his spirit. Truly profound. Truly profound indeed. So then the text continues. And Elizabeth, she herself, filled with the Holy Spirit, now she begins to prophetically utter. Not just any old words. These are words from God. And she exclaimed with a loud shout and said, You are blessed among women. Note, this is what the Spirit is saying. You are blessed among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to be in my ears, the baby leaped gladness in my womb. Now, we're going to have to do something a little bit thorny, something dicey. This could be controversial. We have to deal properly with what Scripture teaches us about Mary. So Elizabeth, speaking by the Holy Spirit, says of Mary that Mary is the mother of my Lord. Mary is the mother of your Lord. And Lord is a theologically loaded term. Because in the time of Mary and Elizabeth, 
the Jews of that day would not say the name of God. The Pharisees came up with this fantastic idea. All right, so the commandment says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, we've got an easy way to keep that one. We'll just never say his name. (sighs) Yeah, talk about missing the forest because of a tree. Anyway, so what they would do when you would go to the synagogue and you were handed a scroll and the guy would read from the text, any time the name of God appeared, Yahweh, you know, it was changed. They would just say Adonai, which means Lord. Very simple. Can't blaspheme God's name if you never mention it. So every time you say the word Lord, what you really mean is God, at least in that context. So here we have this passage. The Holy Spirit says, Mary is the mother of my Lord, which means, you can interpret this literally, Mary is the mother of our God. And you sit there and go, oh, that sounds Roman Catholic. Yeah, I know. It does. So here's the issue. All right. Some things that Rome teaches about Mary are just flat out wrong. For instance, we don't believe that Mary is the queen of heaven. So we can say, nope. Eh. We don't believe that she's the co-redemptrix, that somehow our salvation was earned by Christ's suffering on the cross and Mary's suffering while she's watching Jesus suffer. Yep, nope, we don't believe that. We don't pray to her to seek intercessions in the hour of our death. And we definitely don't believe that she was sinless or immaculate at the time she conceived Christ. In fact, this text argues against that. So let's put all of that aside and say all of that other stuff, it ain't biblical, it ain't the truth. But it is true to absolutely say that she is the mother of our Lord. Now you have to understand this. In one real sense, God doesn't have a mom. There's a reason for this. God has always been. Beings that have always been Well, they don't have a beginning. Everybody who has a mom has a beginning. But something happened in human history, and that is called the incarnation. God becomes man. Second person of the Trinity, the Son, has a mom. And so we can say, and I know this sounds just theologically weird, Mary is the mother of God, the mother of our Lord. This is what this text teaches And you sit there and go, but work with me for a second. There's some reasons why this is really important. Okay, To deny that, well, that God in the incarnation has a mother is to deny that God has a body. All right? And that he has given once for all into death. And that the body and blood that he gives us in the Lord's Supper is there for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And to deny that he has a mom is to deny that he has a body that can be offered up for the life of the world. So when we deny that the right things about what is taught about Mary or diminish her, we end up denying and diminishing Christ's humanity, which is a very dangerous thing to consider doing. And keep this in mind. I know this is a little bit abstract, but work with me here for a second. Scripture clearly teaches that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And when it's talking about shedding of blood, it's not talking about sticking an IV in somebody and letting some blood drip out. That's not what's being talked about here. The shedding of blood literally is referring to death. And so, since God has always been, He will always be. 
God cannot die. So because God cannot die, that means God in His nature is incapable, I know it seems weird, of actually addressing our sin problem. So the solution for that is simple. God becomes one of us. So Christ is both God and man. God has taken into His nature a human body. And this is good news for us because Christ now, God in human flesh, can die. What our epistle text says. Listen again to our epistle text from Hebrews. It says this, speaking of Jesus, Behold, I have come to do your will. And he does away with the first in order to establish the second. That's the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, in order to establish the new covenant. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So in the incarnation, there is a mystery. There's, when you look at those nativity scenes, there in the manger, is a boy, an infant boy, son of man. At the same time, there is also the eternal God. One package. And it's all for us because He's heading to the cross to die for our sins. So, we do not shy away from saying that Mary is the mother of our Lord because in confessing that, we are confessing that God has taken on a body, a human body, truly a descendant of Adam, come to fulfill the law and bleed and die for our sins. It's all part of the mystery of the Incarnation. But we don't pray to Mary. We don't consider her co-redemptrix. We do not say she was immaculate. None of that other stuff. But truly she was blessed. Because the honor of carrying God in human flesh in your womb, that is an amazing honor. Not given to men, but given to a woman. Keep this in mind. That goes all the way back to the prophecy given in Genesis chapter 3. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. You see, paradise was lost initially by the sin of a woman. And now salvation is being given to us initially through a woman. Right? God is honoring women in this way. This is good news. So now we come to this great text, verse 45, back in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And blessed is she, having believed that there would be a fulfillment of the things having been spoken to her from God. Quite a mouthful. But it kind of goes this way. Remember when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and said that you were going to give birth? And she said, how's this going to be? I'm a, I'm a virgin. She's kind of worried, worried about the mechanics of this whole thing going on. Now you could say of Mary that unlike any other woman who's ever become pregnant, she became pregnant through her ears, through the word of the Lord, right? And what was her response? Be it to me as you have said. Be it to me as you have said. And so now Elizabeth, speaking by the Holy Spirit, says, blessed is she, having believed that there would be a fulfillment of the things having been spoken to her from the Lord. Now, so much of preaching nowadays, it's all about the application. So how are we supposed to apply this to ourselves today? What should you go out and do? 
Well, some preachers have come up with these clever ideas. Well, what is the thing that the Lord has told you to do? You know, what has he revealed in your heart? What are you pregnant with within inside of you? Are you pregnant with potential? Are you pregnant with a destiny? Are you pregnant? It's just nonsense, right? Well, let me kind of tweak that a little bit because so many guys miss the obvious. Oftentimes, the application, it's just like a little child. Believe the story that you're being told, right? Let me give you kind of a bad example of that. When I was a young lad, my father played a joke on me. It was a terrible joke. But it shows kind of the trust that I had in my father. My father came to me, and he had his fist like this. He says, Chris, I want to show you something. What do you want to show me, Dad? I have a bee in my hand. A bee? All right. You want to see it? No! Bees sting. They're terrible. They're awful. No, come here, son. Oh, Dad, you have a bee in your hand? All right. So he takes his hand, and he opens it up, and he had written the letter B on the palm of his hand. All right, silly, silly example. But here's the idea. I believed what my dad told me. And my dad, well, he didn't lie. He truly had a bee in his hand. Okay. Oftentimes, the solution to how do we apply a text, it's staring us in the face. It's as obvious as can be, and yet we can't quite seem to wrap our head around it. Because here's the idea. Let me back up again. I told you we're going to look at two things from the earlier part of Luke to get our context. So here's our context. My question for you is this. Why did Luke write his gospel? Why did he write this? Why is this even written in the first place? Why are we reading this story this morning? Let me read from Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some times past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. You see, the reason why Luke wrote what he wrote is so that you can have certainty. And by the way, the word Theophilus, fascinating word. I love it because it's just filled with double entendre. Now, there probably was a real historical person, probably wealthy too, and his name was Theophilus. Theo means God. Philophilus (laughs) by itself. You've heard of the word Philadelphia, right? City of brotherly what? Love, right, right? So Theophilus is a lover of God. That's his name. His name is one who loves God. And so this comes to you, Theophilus, because are you not one who is baptized into Christ? Do you not come to the altar here and receive the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Were you not absolved of your sins and heard once again that Christ has bled and died for you and that you are forgiven? Well, then you are in Christ. And God has given you faith and regenerated you and filled you with the Holy Spirit. You truly are a Theophilus. You are a lover of God. And so this is written to you too, right? 
which is why you're reading it today. And this was written so that you can have certainty concerning the things that have been taught by the eyewitnesses, by the ministers of the word, Luke says, so that you can have certainty. Or the way John puts it in his gospel in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, here's what it says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in His name. I read one theologian once who said that this sentence should be the whole thesis statement for the entire Bible. These things are written. You could put, take this, put it at the beginning. You know, say, introduction, you know, Genesis 1, verse 0. Right? Kind of stick it in there, right? These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in His name. And so now coming back then to this statement of the Holy Spirit through the woman, Elizabeth, the one who is miraculously pregnant, the one who is miraculously now speaking words from God through the Holy Spirit, after her son, who is the forerunner of Christ, has leapt for joy at the sound of the mother of his Lord. Blessed is she, having believed that there would be a fulfillment of the things having been spoken to her from the Lord. So here's the application. These things are written so that you can have confidence and certainty that you are in Christ, that you are forgiven, that you have a right standing before God, because these words from God through Luke to you this morning are, I have great news. God has become a man, born of the Virgin Mary, and He came to suffer for your sins under Pontius Pilate. And He truly was crucified for you and for the forgiveness of your sins, but He also rose again on the third day. These things are written so that you would believe. And so you can have the same blessing if you would that Mary has. Because Mary was blessed because she believed the words of the Lord spoke to her that they would be fulfilled. Do you believe that Christ was born in Bethlehem? Born to be your Savior? Born to bleed and die for your sins? Well, blessed is the one who believes the words of the Lord will be fulfilled for them. This is the message that comes to you today. Good news of great joy. Great joy. You who sat in darkness, born enslaved to sin, death, and the devil, incapable of saving yourself, racked with sin, walking in ways that are unholy, knowing that you have earned the wrath of God for all of that, light has now come into the darkness. And that light has come to set you free. Do you believe? Christmas is all about Evening, is it not? So we return to our text and we end with the Magnificat. And that's what this section of Scripture is called. Mary's response is called the Magnificat. There's a liturgy that actually sings it. It's one of my favorite liturgical tunes. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And His mercy 
it's to generations and generations, is on, one, on the ones who are fearing him. He did a mighty deed with his arm. He scatters ones proud in the thoughts of their heart, and he brought down rulers from their thrones and lifted up the lowly ones. Let me return to verse 46 and point this out. Actually, 47. Here's what it says. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices greatly over God my Savior. There's the words. Mary said that God is her what? Savior. Only ones who are sinners need a Savior. And by confessing that her soul magnifies the Lord and God her Savior, she's confessing she is also a sinner in need of a Savior. And there goes the Immaculate Conception. All gone with one statement, confession from Mary herself. And you, you little lambs of Congreger, you too can magnify the Lord and rejoice in God your Savior. For his mercy is to generations and generations on all of the ones fearing him, and that is you. And God has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the ones proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And who are the ones proud here? Who are the proud ones? Well, everyone who basically exalts himself and exalts his self-righteousness. It's akin to what you see with the Pharisees doing. Ah, we don't need to be baptized by John the Baptist. That's a baptism for sinners, for the forgiveness of sins. We don't need none of that. That's proud. That's pride, the highest degree. You think of the the story that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the Pharisee in the temple, at the time of the evening sacrifice, at three in the afternoon when the lamb is slaughtered, is praying, not, Lord, have mercy on me. He's praying, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. That I am so holy that I tithe even the herbs in my garden. Right? And yet this, Mary says that the Lord scatters the proud ones in the thoughts of their hearts. And he's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he's lifted up the lowly ones. He filled the ones who are hungry with good things. Who are the hungry and the lowly? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. The lowly who understand that they have nothing to offer God. And they dare not offer their good works to God in exchange for salvation. Because they cannot save. Nope. Instead, the lowly ones are the ones who say that, Lord, we are destitute, hungry, bankrupt, spiritually, poor, poverty-stricken. We have nothing. Have mercy on us. It's wrong that we have come to be in this state, and it's our fault that we are such. These are the ones that the Lord exalts. The one who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. He helped Israel, his servant, so that he might remember mercy just as he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And then Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. So God's mercy is from generation to generations of those who fear him. And blessed is she who, having believed that there will be a fulfillment of the things having been spoken to her from the Lord. And today you have heard a word from the Lord, and the word is this. Christ is born. God in human flesh, come to bleed and die for your sins. The one in the manger 
will take the rough wood of the manger and it will be exchanged for the rough wood of the cross. This baby will grow to a man and then bleed and die for your sins. Do you believe this word of the Lord for you? Believe and be blessed. In the name of Jesus, amen. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash higher Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at higher Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is by death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.